Good morning. That's a, that's a powerful song. We appreciate Jim and Ron sharing with us. Uh, like me, most of us weren't here. Uh, Ron, for those that don't know, Ron in a previous millennium served as the uh, worship arts pastor here. And Ron and I, we've never served together, but we've been good friends. Um, I, I was kidding Jim that appreciated Jim inviting an old white-haired retired fellow to help him out this morning and uh, but what a great job what a powerful song Father we pray for <clears throat> this morning we remember um, those that are at Lake Swan Camp with Operation Joshua just bless that ministry Lord to be more than we could imagine and just for all your great purposes to be accomplished and we thank you for those that have helped work hard to <clears throat> help prepare the the musical tonight um, with the children's choir and the adults and the various um, ministries father and just pray that it would be a great kickoff to holy week for us that we can take this week and concentrate on you and be able to to just really make it a holy week that sets the stage for every week being a holy week and every day being a holy day because of Christ in us, the hope of glory. So Lord, as we open your word today, as we're continuing um, to look at the letters of the New Testament, as we look today at Romans, um, I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to have the mind of Christ. In his name, amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and I think Pastor Carly earlier referred to that and referred to the reception that Jesus got at the temple, or pardon me, in Jerusalem when he uh, entered into the city on Palm Sunday, while we call it Palm Sunday, with the palm branches that they used to welcome him. And... <clears throat> Understand the context that those that were welcoming Jesus, it's clear from the language when they say, Lord, save, that's what Hosanna means. When they say, um, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David. They're, they're, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118.26, which is messianic in nature. And son of David is the clear title for the Messiah, they are affirming that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has come, and their perception is that he is going to deliver them from the Romans who are occupying. They're an occupying government. They have no freedom, and they're being occupied by a foreign government and Jesus is going to come deliver them because that's, after all, what the Messiah does and who he is. He's the one that comes and restores Israel to prominence and the glory days, as it were, from the time of David and Solomon, etc. And so they're expecting that to happen. They don't have a concept that the Messiah has come and he's going to die as a sacrificial death for sin and be raised again and come again a second time. In fact, if you read the Old Testament without any prior knowledge of the New Testament, 
I would challenge you to see a clear, clear evidence of two comings of the Messiah. It's there, but it's certainly obscure. And today, with regard to Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus, the overwhelming majority still, like then, don't expect but one coming of the Messiah. I was reading the other day, uh, uh, some rabbis were predicting, because I think it's year 5,800 and something in the Jewish calendar. I'm not exactly sure the number, but it's somewhere close to that. And so in a hundred and so years, it'll be the year 6,000, and these rabbis were saying they believe the Messiah was going to come in the year 6,000, right? My, My point is there's clearly an understanding of a Messiah coming, but there's not a clear understanding of two comings, and more importantly, on Palm Sunday, they're welcoming Jesus to deliver them. He's their rescuer. He's going to deliver them from the oppressive Roman yoke. Imagine what a, what a shock it was when less than a week later, that same Roman government that they expected him to deliver them from executes him. I mean, honestly, from, from just a human perspective and the reality, we hear this story so much, we don't really get into, the, into the, the, the nuances and the reality of what the people that were living it experienced because we know the rest of the story, so we automatically read that back into the big picture. But if we take it at face value where it is, I'm shocked that any of them followed Jesus as Messiah. Because this guy, and you see a, you see a hint of it in, in Luke 24, when they're on the road to Emmaus, they're going, we don't know what's going on. We, we thought this guy was going to be the Messiah. And what is even worse, now the body's missing. And, of course, Jesus is walking along. I think it's one of the funniest exchanges in the Bible. Jesus, oh, really? Where is he, you think? Ah. And, 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 and so what I'm saying is that, that that's the context. But, but then we get to Tuesday of, of after the Sunday of Palm Sunday, and we get to Tuesday in Matthew 23, and Jesus preaches what is probably his last sermon, as it was per se. It wasn't the last thing he said, but it was his last sermon in that sense. And that Jesus concludes it in verse 39 with this remarkable statement that when I first saw this, I just was just amazed. 2339, read it with me. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What? I mean, if I'm standing there listening to Jesus, and I've been there, and I was there on Palm Sunday, and I saw what had happened, and then I and then I hear two days later Jesus say this, I'm sitting here going, "What in the world are you talking about? Didn't we just say that?" Yes, they did. But now Jesus comes back two days later and says, "Hey, you're not going to see me again." What do you mean? We're standing here looking at you now. What are you talking about? You see, the only way that this statement of Jesus can begin to make sense, at least two of the main things that are the only way this statement makes sense, are two things. One, it clearly indicates 
that Jesus understood that he was leaving and going to come back a second time. That's the only way that can happen, right? So Jesus had a clear understanding prior to anything else going on that he was going to be leaving and he was going to come back again. Now, facing what he was about to face with the torture and the rejection and the crucifixion and all of the pain that he was about to endure, that, that speaks to me of a, an absolutely remarkable faith. Because I don't know about you, but when things don't go well with me, I'm wondering, God, who's confused here, me or you? Right? And, and, and it shows remarkable faith. But Jesus clearly affirmed his second coming here. So the idea that Jesus is coming again is Jesus' confirmation. He's coming back because he doesn't lie. Okay, now, second thing, though, that's clearly in this passage that Jesus uses as a condition, a clear condition for his second coming is this. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what, what's going to have to happen with that? That means that at least, at a minimum, the majority of the Jewish people are going to have to believe in Jesus and follow him in order for him to return. Jesus isn't coming back, according to Jesus, until the majority of the Jewish people have received him as their Messiah and Lord and Savior and are following him. That's absolutely clear. Now, that's fascinating in light of the fact that what we're told, I haven't counted them, but I don't doubt the numbers, we're told that there are 8 billion people on the face of planet Earth today. Rough numbers, <laughs> right? 8 billion roughly people. The same demographics tell us that Jewish people being biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether they're observant religious Jews or not, majority of Jewish people are functionally non-practicing. Or, or it's like one fr Jewish friend of mine told me, he said, well, I had bar mitzvah light when I was a kid. And, 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 and they're functioning on practicing. But the fact is, being a biological descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, today, that same demographic tells us that there are 15 to 16 million of those folks on planet Earth. Now, I'm not real good at arithmetic, but do the math. 8 billion versus 15 million? I mean, what percentages are we talking about here? Minutia right? I mean, in terms of the larger scale of the population of humanity, Jewish people are about this much <laughs> of the people on the face of the earth. Now, I would also ask you the question, what's the relative influence of Jewish people? Anybody here that works in the medical industry? Mm, everyone across any Jewish doctors? Hello. Anybody work in the legal industry? Anybody run across any Jewish lawyers? Anybody work in the financial industry? Ever heard across any Jewish uh, influential financial people leaders? December 31st, 1999, I think it was Time Magazine, but don't hold me to that. 
um, it's Time, new, one of those kind of magazines, named their person of the century for their last issue of the 20th century. And for the person of the century, they named Albert Einstein. Right? Irish kid. <laughs> no. Right? And one time I remember back in the 1960s, I saw a quote that said that the majority, the overwhelming majority of people in the world at that time, because there was communism was really, really huge at that time, it said the majority of people in the world at that time were following one of two Jews. Jesus Christ or Karl Marx. So what I'm getting at is that the, the Jewish people in the world are a relatively insignificant number of the total world population, but certainly are impactful in what's happening in the world and in, in culture. Now that being said, though, Joshua Project is a, an online demographic uh, database that's probably the authoritative database for all things religious in the world. They're, they're a really a go-to source that's a great source of, of reference and research. And it's been a couple years, but the last time I checked the Joshua Project, the data was that, <clears throat> for example, this morning, how many of us in here, let me see a show of hands, are trusting Jesus Christ as our sin bearer and our Savior. We believe that he's the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, and we have surrendered our life to him and are trusting him for a relationship with God and gift of eternal life. Raise your hand. Okay. Now, if all 15 to 16 million Jewish people were sitting before me right now, and I asked that same question, what the Joshua Project tells us is, that 99.7% of them would not have raised their hand. That's what the Joshua Project says. 99.7% of the 15 to 16 million would not have raised their hand. Now, that's fascinating because that means that three-tenths of 1% of the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob identify themselves as followers of Jesus the Messiah. Thank God there are some in this room right now. <laughs> Hallelujah. But may their tribe increase. <laughs> right? But, but if Jesus says that he's not coming back till at least the majority of those folks do believe in him, where does that put them as an unreached people group and the priority in that regard? Now, with that truth as a, as a background, let's say answering the question then, digging down further, why hasn't Jesus returned? That's not a new question. That was asked in the New Testament. Peter had to answer that question, the Apostle Peter. And in 2 Peter 3.9, Peter answers that question. Because all the New Testament church thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And they were shocked, and there were several times Paul and Peter had to address it because people were going, wait a minute, people are dying and Jesus hadn't come back. What's going on? They fully expected that to happen. Now, I don't know what Paul and Peter, what we know that they didn't, 
but they were certainly in on that as well and and that's they had given the people the idea that jesus was coming back soon so I, I'm, I'm amused that for the past 2,000 years we've had, uh, even up to our day, all this stuff, you look at the news. I, I mean, I, I one time saw a guy that advertised his ministry, Prophecy Update Revivals. And I'm going, what is that? I mean, you can make anything fit a scenario. The bottom line is what the Bible is abundantly clear about, where there, there's no, it, is what Peter says here and what Jesus has affirmed and what Peter even reaffirms in the scriptures we're going to read. Peter answers that question, and he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some people think of slowness. On the contrary, he is patient with you, for it is not his purpose that anyone should be destroyed, but that everyone should turn from his sins. Peter is clearly saying the reason Jesus hadn't come back is he doesn't say because this prophecy hadn't fulfilled, that prophecy... He doesn't say any of that in answering that question. What he says is the reason Jesus hasn't come back is everybody that God wants to hear about Jesus hadn't had a chance to hear. And when that happens, he'll come back. And you compare that to what... Um, so, so to what Jesus said, it even that would most especially be relevant for Jewish people. So, and by the way, with that in mind, if we want Jesus to come back, what, what's, what's the number one thing we ought to do? We ought to be... Th I mean, who knows? Maybe it's somebody in my family that needs to know the Lord. I don't know. Maybe it's somebody in yours. Maybe it's somebody on the other side of the world. I don't know. But whenever... I give $1 to the A.B. Simpson offering. Whenever I support one of our missionaries that are going out, whenever I start praying for somebody around me that God would open a door for me to share the good news of Jesus with them, I'm doing the most important thing I can do to see Jesus come back to this earth. And Peter even drills down further and more specifically if we wonder what he understood by that in in in, um, in Second Peter answering the question, why in Jesus returned? He drills down even more in Acts 3.19. Now, keep, keep in mind, this is weeks after Jesus has gone back to heaven. Peter knew he had come the first time. He was ready for him to come again. And he's in the temple in Jerusalem, and there's nobody but Jewish people around, and a lame man is healed, and everybody comes and starts asking questions, and they start preaching about Jesus to these folks in the temple. Weeks after Jesus has gone back to heaven. And Peter concludes by saying this, Therefore, saying to the Jewish people, Repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as Messiah. What? Peter is saying exactly what Jesus had said. If you today will turn in mass to Jesus <coughs> as your Messiah, he'll come back right now. He'll come back. No Gentile would ever hear. So Peter understood, even as he answered the question, why didn't Jesus come back? He said, everybody that needs to hear hadn't heard. He even understood that more specifically that was relevant for Jewish people. 
Now, why would, how does that fit in the greater context? Well, Paul explains it in Romans 11, verse 25 and 26. Because Paul is answering the question in Romans 11, why have the Jewish people, the majority of them, not accepted Jesus as the Messiah? Well, Paul explains it this way. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved. Here's the bottom line. What we see biblically is that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, and if the Jewish people had accepted Jesus as Messiah in mass as a majority, Jesus would have set up his kingdom and the Gentiles would have been left out. But God doesn't want anybody to be left out, so he was willing for a partial hardness to occur in Israel to give the Gentiles a chance to hear. But the Bible talks about the times of Gentiles being fulfilled when God is going to unleash his grace on the majority of Israel, and that day is going to be the day that's going to consummate human history prior to the return of Jesus. So back to post-Palm Sunday, and Jesus saying, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the ultimate key to Jesus returning to this earth is his own people, the Jewish people, accepting him and receiving him as their Messiah, their King, and their Lord, and their Savior. That's the ultimate key. You say, well, wait a minute then. If the times of Gentiles got to be fulfilled for God really unleashes his grace on Israel, so why shouldn't we just focus exclusively on Gentiles and get that job over? Well, a couple reasons. One is, is because how would we know when the full number had come in? How do we know? Only God knows when everybody that, want, wants, that needs to hear will hear. Only God knows that. And, and that's even made more complex by the fact Dr. Keith Bailey was a, a district superintendent in the Christian Missionary Alliance is the guy who brought me into the alliance. And Dr. Bailey used to say, talking about that truth, he said, who knows? He said, for example, North Africa today is one of the least Christian places on earth. It's part of the 1040 window. But back in 400, 500 A.D., it was the center of Christianity in the world. Right? I mean, that, that's where Augustine, he's African. You know, the, the point being, Dr. Bailey said, he said, those folks already had a chance to hear and they blew it. So, what, you know, that doesn't mean that they hadn't already been reached in, in a manner potentially, but nobody knows but God. Nobody knows but God. And the second reason that we should say, well, let's, let's focus exclusively on Gentiles, is because the Apostle Paul defined himself as what? The Apostle to the Gentiles. He clearly distinguished that he and Peter had a different focus in their ministry. But how did Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, reach the Gentiles? How did he go about that? What was his strategy? Well, let's get an example of that in Acts 13, 46. On his first journey with Barnabas out ministering, Paul goes up into what is present-day Turkey to a city called Antioch. Well, he goes into town, and what he does, he goes to the synagogue and starts preaching on Sabbath. And the Jewish people in the synagogue go, hey, man, this is kind of interesting. You know, why don't you come back next week 
And let's talk some more about this because we, we want to talk about this more. This is, this is really interesting about this Jesus guy being the Messiah. So that week, Paul gets on social media and asks everybody in town to come and he sends out a group text to all of his friends and buys an ad in a paper. Right, no, you know. But without anybody doing anything, he gets back the next week and what happens? The whole town is there. All the Gentiles just come on their own because the Jews are discussing the potential that their Messiah might have come. So, oh, by the way, all the Gentiles happen to show up. Well, that makes the Jews mad. <laughs> Go figure. And, um, and, and they turn then on Paul and Barnabas. So Paul says to them, Then Paul and Barnabas answered, them boldly we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life we now turn to the Gentiles so Paul who's an apostle to Gentiles oh by the way he happened to always make a priority of telling the Jews first about Jesus well that's logical isn't it but you see this, somebody said, well, that's a one-off. No, it's not a one-off. Read the whole rest of the book of Acts. Every time Paul went into a town as the apostle of the Gentiles, he went first to the synagogue. Every time. It wasn't a one-off. It was an intentional strategy, and it was an intentional priority. Even Philippi, which is really um, interesting because... In Philippi, he goes to the riverbank on the Sabbath. Now, why would he have done that? Well, there obviously wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, or at least one that he was aware of. And what was tradition is that in order to have a synagogue in Jewish tradition, you have to have a minion. And a minion is a certain minimum number of men to start a synagogue. But Jewish tradition also said that if you go to a town on the Sabbath and you can't find a synagogue, then whoever, whatever Jews are in the town that want to worship would go to the nearest river or running stream near the town. So Paul goes to the river because he knows if there's any Jews there, they're going to show up. That's how extensive and extreme he was in this strategy and this intention. And it's through that that, that he reached the Gentiles. Well, why would he do this? Well, with all that set up in the last five minutes we've got, we're going to go to the primary text for today's message as we begin in Romans. A statement that is the thesis sentence of the whole book of Romans and even more. And that's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I want you to read it with me. For I am not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God into salvation to all the ones believing, both to Jew first and to Greek. Now, this sentence, a couple of quotes, Joseph Fitzmaier, who I discovered, actually, I think he's in heaven now, but he's actually a Roman Catholic New Testament scholar, and his commentaries, I was shocked. They're phenomenal. Uh, I, he says that these words in this sentence announce the major theme of the letter and one that will be developed until chapter 11, verse 36. 
This theme recapitulates the whole doctrinal section, which covers 11 chapters in the letter. And then, not only is it just the 11 chapters that it summarizes ahead of time that Paul unwraps, but Robert Mounts, another Bible scholar, says verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1 are pivotal verses in the whole New Testament. He says that this covers the whole New Testament and summarizes the message of the same. So we're going to leave that up there just a second, and we're going to briefly unpack it. If you want to know more about this stuff, you just email me. i got a 22 pages on it that I'll PDF you, okay? But the bottom line, and bear with me, pay attention. You know, this isn't easy stuff, I understand, but sermonettes are for Christianettes. So, first of all, Paul is brilliant, and that's built into the language of this sentence. Paul uses at least three figures of speech in this sentence to com- communicate this powerful point. <laughs> the first is called a lightetes, and that's for I am not ashamed. A lightetes is a figure of speech whereby you understate something by using the opposite of what it is. For I am not ashamed. Well, what's Paul actually saying? I'm proud of the gospel, right? That's what he's actually saying, but he says it using this figure of speech to make it more powerful, to communicate it. And then he goes on, For it is the power of God into salvation to all the ones believing, both to Jew first and to Greek. Jew and Greek is, is a hendiadice where you use a, a conjunction to couple two very large and complex ideas. And, and Jews and Greek, the Greek he's using a metonymy, which is where you take a subset of something to represent the whole. He's not talking about Greek-speaking people here. He's talking about Gentiles. Just like in in Israel today, you've heard the term Zion to refer to Israel. Well, Zion is actually a small hill in the city of Jerusalem, but it became a synonym for the whole country of Israel, right? Well, that's a metonymy. Um, and, and he uses that Greek. So what he's talking about, Jews and Greeks, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. By the way, uh, in, in our culture, we have all these different races, right? This kind of race and that kind of race. In the Bible, there's only two. The Bible only has two races of people, Jews and Gentiles. Paul covers all of humanity right here, period, end of story, from a biblical perspective. Okay, so, so the idea is that Paul is, is brilliantly encapsulating this summary statement of the whole good news of Jesus. But the question then becomes, is it prescriptive or descriptive? You say, what are you talking about? In other words, is this just describing something that's already happened? Or is it a prescription for how we're supposed to reach out to people on an ongoing basis? See, a lot of people, in fact, most people in the evangelical and the Christian world today especially, see this as, well, the gospel came to the Jews first, and that's already been done, so now we're going on to the Gentiles or whatever. The idea being that what he's talking about here is equality of the gospel, right? To both Jew first and Greek. And by the way, most Bible translations leave out both. I have no idea why. Because that communicates equality. But the idea is notice that there's, 
there's a particular um, uh, condition or exclusiveness to the Jewish people hearing it because, yes, it's equality, but it's not equality that doesn't make us a special allowance for Jewish people, right? And so the idea is, is that just a description or is it a prescription for how ministry is, con- is supposed to continue to happen in terms of spreading the good news? I'm going to submit to you that it's prescriptive. And here's three really foundational reasons why. First, how many remember in school when you had a lecture in a lab? You know, you went to chemistry class and the teacher lectured on chemistry. Then you went to the laboratory and blew stuff up, right? Okay, well, I believe that Acts 13.46, which we read a minute ago where Paul said, you know, now that we had had to speak to you first, but now we're going to the Gentiles, I believe that's the lab. This is the lecture. So what Paul is doing is he's making the proposition, but he's showing us what it looks like through his own life and ministry, okay? And then secondly, the control, Arnold Fruchtenbaum and his treatment of this, of this sentence says that in, in the original language, there's two main verbs. One is ashamed and the other one is is. And both of them are present tense. And he said the latter verb is is present tense and it controls the rest of the sentence. And he said, for example, what it, and, and what that means is that's ongoing reality. The gospel is the power of God. It didn't stop being the power of God. That didn't describe something that happened a long time ago. It's not anymore. The gospel is always the power of God for salvation, right? Okay, so, so then the Jew first is still as relevant as is the gospel of is the power of God unto salvation. The same verb controls them both. And that reality. And then thirdly, the third reason I'd say to you it's prescriptive is Romans 2, 9 and 10. Read it with me. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Paul uses that same phrase, both Jew first and Greek. He uses it two more times just a few sentences later in Romans. And he doesn't mean one thing by it one time and another thing by it another time. And there are even Bible commentators who will say that the first one, Jew first and Greek, in Romans 1.16, that's just descriptive. But then when they get to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2, they say, well, that's not descriptive. That's saying that Jews get first in line for judgment because they've had greater opportunity, and they're first in line for reward for that. You can't have it both ways. It either means what it means or not. And that's exactly what the passage means. Functionally, what does that mean? If I'm standing here and there's a Jewish person here and a Gentile here and neither one of them have heard the good news, what I believe the Bible teaches and what I'm going to do, I'm going to talk to the Jew first. You say, well, why are you leaving the Gentile out? No, that's powerfully the way to include the Gentile. What happened in Antioch? The whole city came the next week. My point is that what we need to understand is that biblically, biblically, when we follow God's 
biblical prescription, God's power is released in ways that we're not even aware of. I contacted the head of Jews for Jesus. I contacted the head of Chosen People Ministries, some of these largest ministries that are outreached to Jewish people in the world. And I asked him, I said, y'all do these street camps. You've seen the pictures, right? Like Jews for Jesus are on the street, got big signs, Jews for Jesus, right? They're Jewish people out there handing out literature to Jewish people. You ever seen that? Right. Who do you assume they're out there trying to reach? Hello, Jewish people, right? I mean, you got to be tone deaf to not figure that one out. But guess what? If you talk to these folks, in those efforts to specifically reach Jewish people... For every one Jewish person that makes a decision for Jesus, at least five Gentiles come to Jesus. But, oh, by the way, they're prioritizing Jews. You say, well, that's because there are more Gentiles than there are Jews. Sure, that's a valid point, but, but I, would, I would say that they're still prioritizing Jewish people. If I'm a Gentile walking by there, I'm saying, well, they're not talking to me. You see... What we need, back to Palm Sunday, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The truth of that, that I think ultimately goes back to the rationale of Romans 1.16, is according to Jesus, he's not coming back till the majority of Jewish people come to know him. And according to Peter that everybody needs to have a chance to hear in the times of Gentiles. And, and by the way, I don't, I don't understand this. I don't know it. People get up and say, well, this happened in prophecy. Listen, you'll know it after it happens. But I got to wonder, in 1967, what happened? For the first time since the Maccabean period, 160-some years before Jesus, Jewish people took control of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, it was Luke 21, where he says that Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, is there a line in the sand? Time of the Gentiles fulfilled? I, I think it's a season. And I wonder if we're not in that season of transition. The greatest tragedy in the Bible are the words expressed by John in chapter 1, he came into his own and his own received him not Jesus words in Matthew 23 have changed my view of Palm Sunday it's not just about Jesus first coming but it's about his second coming and I believe that welcome that day was a dress rehearsal it's also changed my focus in helping others to be rescued by Jesus I pray he'll use me in the lives of those who don't know him yet but in order to effectively reach all of them, I pray first for my Jewish friends who don't know their Messiah yet. And my challenge and my question to you is, would you at least be willing to start praying for God to open your eyes? Are there Jewish people around you who don't yet know their Messiah? Would you love them by just praying for them? And then just see what God does with it. I don't ask you to do any more than that. But the challenge and the commitment today is just to say, would you pray for them and see if God starts to open doors? Amen.